Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk podcast, a Center for Human Rights podcast series, hosted by Victoria Amechi. Welcome to the Africa Rights Talk podcast. Um, can you please introduce yourself to those that don't really know you? I'm your popular amongst the students. Um, and the nature of work that you do at campus. Thank you very much, uh, Victoria. Thank you again for having me on this, uh, on this podcast. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, my name is John Magiri. I'm a teacher, researcher, scholar in the Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Victoria. I uh, teach mainly in the broad field of jurisprudence with a specific concern for legal philosophy. Um, and my own research uh, deals in a word with the problem of race, uh, the conceptual, political, historical problem of race as it pertains to the law and as it pertains to the historical construction and unfoldment of South Africa. So the central concern of my research, uh, just in line with the theme uh, of our discussion around Freedom Day is racial and freedom, is the idea that um, since the advent of the colonial encounter nearly half a millennium ago, <clears throat> People, communities, populations, racialized as black, continue to carry the burdens of the historical violence, of slavery, of colonization, uh, and of what we might call everyday racism. Um, and that they are, shall we say, burdened by unfreedom in an anti-black society. And the specific challenge that my work aims to um, put forward is that the dominant historical, political, intellectual assumptions that make up the idea of post-1994 South Africa in particular, but really the, the whole idea of the modern world uh, is, is, is structured by uh, the endurance of white supremacy at the not simply political and legal levels, but also at the economic, social, cultural, epistemological, what we might call symbolic levels. And so uh, I have been um, working at the intersection of um, black consciousness and critical race theory, or I've, I've been working within the black radical tradition more generally, um, in order to ask um, questions about how racial and freedom, black suffering, but also black resistance remain problems in historical motion. Other side of my life, I am also the head of the Department of Jurisprudence. And um, uh, as I mentioned, I'm, 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 I'm involved in a number of courses. I teach the, the, the core legal philosophy course here in uh, the L as part of the LLB. I also um, teach um, a master's course called Post-Apartheid Jurisprudence. And in that course, we spend a lot of time looking at um, the history and theory of constitutionalism and the extent to which constitutionalism of the variety that uh, predominates in South Africa 
the specific form of constitutional democracy that we have in South Africa, whether that is um, an adequate basis for constructing a liberated society. And um, in teaching, uh, I also am interested then in the history of ideas and specifically in the um, in, 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 in the whole question of which sources, which theoretical traditions, which philosophical approaches have, 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 have tended to be central in constructing the canon of what jurisprudence entails. And so you see that some of my recent research um, is on um, revisiting a intellectual political lineage that is called the Azanian tradition, which is the Africanist black radical, pan-Africanist black consciousness tradition that um, for now, uh, my focus is on, I think, three principal theoreticians. Anton Lembede, 1940s AC Youth League, Robert Sobukwe, who starts in the AC Youth League and breaks away from it in the formation of the Pan-Africanist Congress, uh, and then Stephen Bantubiko, who emerges in that period um, in the late 60s, um, up to his death, late 70s, um, that period where the ANC and the PAC are banned. And the, how these three thinkers each articulate a certain idea of, of what black liberation means or what could look like. Um, so that's that's my research and teaching uh, in a nutshell. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I also attend one of your classes, not one, like the full semester, and I, right. I, can, I can attest to conversations and the really critique current uh, legal knowledge mm. and how to like fight for you know like an expansive you know way to approach um, liberation and freedom um what does freedom day mean to you personally and how do you you know celebrate or commemorate it and what do you think it means to South African people <laughs> um the answer is going to be very difficult um, in part because uh, I suppose I associate myself with a critical tradition that um, questions, problematizes, or at least wishes to interrogate um, how we tell the story of South Africa. 27 April 1994 is in the popular imagination assumed to be the herald, the moment that heralds freedom, because it's of course the um, democratic elections that would bring the first um, black government, black and inverted commas, black government to power and presumably bring an end to formal legal apartheid, if you want to call it that. Now, to call the right to vote or the achievement of the right to vote freedom in itself. Um, is something that's rather contentious. And the contention begins with the historical question of what is the source of our unfreedom? Those who work from the paradigm, what I would call a liberal paradigm that centers apartheid, would view the uh, multi-century antagonism of racial violence and the systems of racial domination that were set in motion uh, from 1652 to the present as problems of discrimination, exclusion, of impaired political citizenship. From that 
liberal view of things, the problem of colonial apartheid was simply that black people were not allowed to participate in it. And therefore, their being integrated, included, assimilated into the new political order constitutes a certain kind of freedom. Another tradition insists that colonial apartheid was about the conquest of the territory that is now known as South Africa. That colonial conquest involves the denial of sovereignty and humanity to the African. That it imposes a settler colonial regime of power in terms of which African people, black people, are inserted into a world that is not of their making, suffering not simply under a colonial state, but also under a state of colonization. On this view, colonial apartheid is an unthinkable form of violence and terror, which has been institutionalized over a long period of time and is fundamentally concerned with uh, the treatment of the African personality and of black of the black majority as outsiders, as second-class citizens, uh, as not part of the body politic, in part because deprived of sovereignty, deprived of humanity, and deprived of the conditions, economic, social, cultural, epistemological conditions necessary for true self-determination and true self-knowledge. On that view, the mere right to vote simply constitutes consent to a continuing inhumane social order. Rather, liberation here would have to be a thoroughgoing and fundamental remaking of the place that we know as South Africa. And that will involve, among other things, restoration and restitution of stolen land, restoration of damaged and impaired sovereignty, cultural, psychological rebuilding of the African personality. Rejection of white supremacy as not only a political principle, but as a substantive material reality. The dismantling of the structures, the processes, the dynamics, the epistemologies and ontologies that produce, generate, create our current situation of fundamental racial inequality um, and racial domination in the country. What that means, therefore, um, is that what we call Freedom Day is at best, um, like in the United States, a kind of civil rights day or a voting rights day, which doesn't actually answer the full weight of the problem of racial unfreedom as it had been set in motion through colonial apartheid to the present. That's one part of the story. Here's another part of the story. I've been reading a text by a scholar named Tyler Stovar. It's called White Freedom. In that text, he makes the very interesting argument that freedom as a concept and as it emerged in Western political theory was always internally racially qualified. To be free and to be white or European were the same things. So that the early Western theoreticians of freedom understood that, one, freedom would always exclude other people because freedom was a freedom at someone else's costs. 
Right, but but more to the point that that um, whether it's let's start let's start in ancient Greece, the apparent uh, mecca of Western political thought. Even in 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 Greek antiquity, in the Greek polis, the slave or the woman or the foreigner, these were not subjects of freedom. They were not seen as entitled to the same freedom or the same quality of freedom. Freedom always. From its get-go was not collective universal freedom for all. In the in the world of European modernity, as Europe begins what it calls its voyages of discovery, experienced by the rest of the world as voyages of death, freedom was always qualified. To be free meant to be white. To be white meant to be free. To be black meant to be the proper subject of enslavement the proper subject of slavery, the proper creature from whom cheap labor is to be extracted. The French and American revolutions, which are taken to be the beacon events in the Western tradition of the freedom struggle, were each constituted by the unfreedom of the black subject. Let's forget for the French Revolution, of course, that what that um, revolution really was about was about the rise of bourgeois power, was about the rise of a European um, economic class that would take over from the nobilities and the monarchies which were to then be uh, brought down in the revolution. The American Revolution involved the desire to break from Britain by the American colonists in order to enforce the system of racial slavery. Tyler Stovall, in other words, is making the point that we are yet to experience and know a form of freedom that is for everybody. So within freedom already is a certain history um, of racial violence and racial exclusion, uh, which I think is interesting. So what does Freedom Day mean to me? Freedom Day is to me one of the um, signal events in the post-apartheid calendar where the narrative, the national mythology of the post-apartheid is generally perpetuated. And I side with social movements uh, that argue that, in fact, 27 April 1994 is Day, is an opportunity, a day and date of reflection to ask what is required to continue the struggle for liberation, the struggle for true, genuine, lasting liberation for the black majority in this country, breaking with economic, spiritual, social bondage that had been imposed on them and their ancestors over the long period of colonialism. South Africans, it's a public holiday and nobody would dispute that, but um, I, I think it's a day on which we should pause the celebration and mourn the fact that um, we are still not yet free. What are your thoughts on the role of education in promoting freedom, equality and human rights in South Africa? You know, I, I'm generally not, um, I wouldn't call myself and I don't experience myself as an optimist. But one of the things that does make me optimistic, one of the things that I hold out for, for the idea that we could enrich democratic cultures in this, in, in, in this country, for the fact that we can um, energize people um, to continue the struggle for justice and, 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 and against inequality uh, and against domination is education. I, I see education primarily, and I'm going to talk about higher education, what we do here, 
um, as an opportunity to cultivate a care for humanity, a deep commitment to deep social transformation, deep political change, deep liberation. Um, I see education as the place where um, our students can be drawn in to imagine what a free society looks like, how they can respond to the challenges of the world. Uh, we know that racial unfreedom is tied up with, is entangled with gendered violence, sexual violence and discrimination. It's tied with um, the ecological disaster that now threatens the very survival and habitability of the planet. We know that there are places in the world where um, African people, migrants, refugees of all kinds um, are treated in the most inhumane and violent ways. We know that there's the rise of a right-wing white nationalism across the Euro-American world, and there are some South African iterations of it too, with organizations like Afroforum Solidarity, Institute for Race Relations, are playing this right-wing um, uh, um, politics. Um, we, we know that hunger and poverty and death and violence against black people in the United States, these problems are all bound up together. And that it is, it is, it is in the classroom, in studying the history of ideas, history of particular figures who have struggled, in understanding how the world has come to be, um, and, and, and what the future might look like that we could imagine and, and, and theorize and project new possibilities for the survival of the planet and for a more just, liberated and lasting uh, peace and justice in the world. Um, and, so, and so for that reason, um, I, I see education as playing a the critical role. And I'm not just talking formal education. I would like to live in a society of people who are literate, who are thoughtful, who are critical about power and justice, who care for the world, for the environment, for the non-human world, um, who wish to make this a livable world. That's not just about the economists and the engineers and the scientists. It's also the poets and the singers and the writers. Um, what it means to really love the world, you know, Many philosophers in the Western tradition talk about worldliness, but of course, their concept of world is, a, is, is one that is sutured with violence, implicated in the violence of the modern world. But I, I, I think that um, the task of both formal and informal education, of the kinds of cultural and intellectual production that gets produced, um, the book clubs that people have, the reading that we do outside of the class, that, that is what an attempt to I don't want to use the word produce, to cultivate the kinds of people that this world needs in order to survive. Otherwise, we will not survive. So I see education as one of the major and fundamental hopes for a different kind of society. And for that, what do we need to do? We need to study the history of the world, the history of Africa. We need to understand the sciences, the literatures, the knowledges, um, the, the forms of expression, the literatures, the ways in which human beings have lived, the history of civilizations. Um, and then we need to think about what are the major challenges in the world? How are we, 
what kinds of citizens, what kinds of persons, what kind of human relations do we need to cultivate? Um, so I see education as having the potential for um, inciting or igniting or keeping open the possibility for a really revolutionary transformation of our reality writ large. And, and we cannot do without educated, critically educated, people who are educated not just in a kind of technical or technocratic knowledge, but in a nourishing life-affirming knowledge, anti-oppression knowledge, anti-subordination knowledge, social justice knowledge. Um, and and, and, and I, I am worried that um, educational institutions, educational practices or pedagogical practices more generally um, are, are being overcrowded by the noise of mass media and the nihilism of, of the present world. Um, but I, it, it is education where revolutionary possibility I think, can be animated. So I think that's an important... How do you think we need to balance um, history and the uh, need to, you say, move on and view the future or work on the present and view the future? How do you think we need to balance? Mm. The idea of moving on in South Africa is a, is a, is a, a violent, but also uh, at this stage, thoroughly uh, untenable position. We, we, we do not even yet fully apprehend our history. The conditions, the, the sources that have constructed the world and South Africa the way it is, the economic histories, the social histories. Let's not even talk about the pre-colonial histories, the knowledge of freedom of the world before. We can barely remember life in the 60s and 70s and the repressive environment that had been created there, and the struggles of our parents and grandparents to make a life in the midst of these dehumanizing conditions. So the, the idea of a moving on is, is untenable. We need to be continuously and deeply historically conscious people. We need to be literate in our own histories. We need to be literate in the histories of the world. We need to be literate in the histories of our historical oppressors in order to think about what a future might look like. I don't, I've never been persuaded that we need to invent entirely a different projection or project for the future. I think some of the lessons lie in what we call the past. I think some of these lessons lie in, you know, there are a lot of things now that people call new, you know, like the rise of alternative dispute resolution as opposed to um, the excessive litigiousness of, of, of our present society. Those are the kinds of modes of, and methods that many pre-colonial societies operated. So we don't even know our names to use that metaphor. We don't, we don't, we don't, our apprehension of our historical being, most people, most average South Africans do not know their history beyond two or three generations prior. So we're not even at the point of talking about moving on. But secondly, I don't see history as, 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 as a as a kind of prison of the past. I see history as an ongoing accumulation of, of, of experience, of, of the human experience. Um, it's not a dead past when we talk about history. It's a living, ongoing past. And we are struggling to make sense of ourselves, to reconcile ourselves 
or to, to be in good relation, in right relationship with that history and with that past. I do think we need to learn from the past, not just in the romantic sense. We need to understand how have different struggles for liberation, different struggles for, for revolution, how have they failed? This is another important thing. We can't just talk about our heroes. Um, in other words, we can't just think of histories of revolution and history of struggle in heroic terms. We also need to think about them in tragic terms. We have, in other words, to not belabor the point, we have not plumbed the depths of what it means to be historically imaginative people. So there is no moving on. You know, there's an African proverb um, that, uh, I mean, in my language is, uh, which simply means that a debt or a, or an injury or an atrocity cannot be extinguished or forgotten until it is materially resolved among the living generations as they come into right relationships with the generations that have passed and those which are yet to come. So we need to, um, we need to be historically imaginative, not concerned with moving on. We, we must know who we are, where we come from, what we have lost before we even think about a notion of forgetting. You know, we, we have to face the historical ordeal. So history for me is not the past, it's, it's the living present. And, and so for that reason, I don't think we can talk about uh, commemorating Freedom Day without thinking about the histories of our freedom. Um, and again, Freedom Day sells a particular story of South African freedom, which if we are well-versed in the literature, we will challenge widely enormously. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Ndibiswa talks about this concept of historical power. And he says that at the core of colonial violence is the deprivation um, of black people's historical power. And the usurpation by our historical of historical power. And what is historical power? It's two things. It's the power that a dominant group accumulates across through time and history. I suppose you could also call it generational power. It's social cultural power. It's 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 the it's 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 that whole weight of historical power. But then it's also power over history writing itself. It's also the question of who controls the narratives. And as you know, uh, several uh, African writers and thinkers have been concerned not with the history of the hunter, but with the history of the lion. And um, we, so we have yet to even enter this contention over, over the terms of historical power, which are currently still wielded by, by the historically dominant members of our society. And so um, it's linked to the question you asked about, about, about education, is that we, it's not just about honoring our struggle, it's about remembering it and understanding its failures, and understanding its possibilities, and also understanding what teachings that previous struggles for freedom hold for us to. Um, okay, you talked about uh, the marginalized voices, like the violence against um, other groups, like uh, women, gender violence, um, sexual violence, even xenophobic violence against uh, national, foreign nationals. How do we intersect the conversation about freedom with other marginalized groups and advocate or have enough conversations about mm. those, those Right, right. 
whether we think of these multiform forms of violence as intersecting or accumulating or uh, multiplying uh, or as layered, um, what we know is that um, we cannot separate questions of racial justice from questions of sexual and gender justice, from questions of uh, global freedom, from questions of reparations, from questions of decolonization, from questions of environmentalism, from questions, you know, these problems um, are the, the, the deep-rooted consequences of um, different kinds of forms of domination as they've, as they've, as they've conjured in particular historical contexts and historical formations. Um, on the one hand, there's a theoretical debate about um, causal relationships between these different identity categories and the different systems of power that trail each of those categories. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, we know that what we need, you know, is, you know, Steve Biko talked about giving the world a human face, uh, a struggle for a true humanity. Um, Franz Fanon, the same thing. Thinkers like Sylvia Winter talk about this. The ceremony must be found. We need to reclaim a new experience of being human. Um, one of my senior colleagues, uh, Professor Nukobe Ramosa, talks about Wun, which, which is about uh, a humane mode of coexistence among all living people and the living dead and the yet to be born and the natural world. So we need to apprehend these problems as connected. Uh, of course, in our research, in our scholarship, we can only touch on some of them. We can only think through um, different varieties of these problems. But in the larger question, the struggle for freedom is not um, a single story. Um, it is a struggle to make this world livable for everyone, for different choreographies of being so different ways of expressing and living uh, that at the core affirms the equal humanity of everyone. And so um, you've mentioned intersectionality, and that's a very important tool developed by Black women scholars to try and articulate these kinds of uh, multiple forces of discrimination, multiple forces of oppression and domination, and how they function. Uh, there are, of course, other people who, who, who theorize these questions in different ways. Uh, but at the core of this question is always a reminder that this is a struggle to um, inhabit a completely different concept of what it means to be human. And that's going to mean many things. Some people suggest that's going to involve not simply the abolition of white supremacy and patriarchy, but also of capitalism, also of heteronormativity. It might even mean the abolition of the nation state and the borders. It might mean... Um, what some people call it degrowth. It means slowing down the rate of overproduction and the damage to the environment. So these issues are certainly connected and it is our duty as teachers and scholars and activists to um, find ways of articulating this. The other term that's very important uh, that I want to add here is um, the need uh, to organize uh, as, as many scholars, Keguro Macharia and others call, across differences. Um, sometimes uh, we uh, 
get trapped in um, what some people call Operation Olympics or we get trapped in a certain kind of moralizing. What we need now is to ask the question of the survival of the planet is at stake, but the survival of the planet involves um, repairing historical injustices and historical wounds. Some of these things are highly complicated. If you talk about gender and sexual violence, you know, um, violence, abuse, degradation in already violated and oppressed communities is something that's very, that's very pressing. So these are some of the things that, of course, uh, come together in, a, in the struggle for, for freedom and for a different world. So far, we've talked about all this conversation, all these issues. Um, um, how far do you think we are, or South Africa is, towards like actual freedom, actual equality? Mm, mm, like I said, it depends on you know, um, depends on one's definition of freedom. I think that liberal freedom can only go so far. Um, formal political abstract freedom, we have it. People can vote, people don't have to carry passes. Um, if you're violated, there's a court that you can go to. And I don't want to naysay those kinds of changes. You know, sometimes people say um, critics of liberalism and liberal freedom underestimate the importance of uh, living in a society where there's rule of law, where there's a culture of justification, where there's courts and where there's um, accountable government. I don't think that that's true. I think we all appreciate the need to live in societies that are governed fairly and that are governed sensibly, uh, societies that are not corrupt, and societies that enable freedom, enable flourishing, and enable inequality, and enable equality. The, the, the problem is that that kind of political freedom, formal political freedom, is unsustainable without social, material, economic, psychological freedom. On the basis of a on the basis of economic justice and on the basis of psychological freedom and spiritual freedom. And I don't think South Africa is anywhere close to grappling with the degree of poverty, inequality, violence, and suffering that is the consequence and the afterlife of, of colonial So you can imagine I'm not particularly optimistic. Yeah, you must have In conclusion, I would like to ask you to give a few because you're not optimistic, I think it's a good thing of me asking this. But just in honor of the day, to give a few words to me about the hopes for the future of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't like words like hope and words like optimism because they involve denying the material reality that's at stake. But I will say we should not despair. I will say that we must constantly seek out in our everyday lives moments of animating and enacting struggles for freedom, for justice. Uh, you know, I'm reading some uh, poetry at the moment that to add love as well. But I'm also one of the people who says without freedom, there's no love. Um, because love, 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 love requires 
freedom and flourishing. But in any instance, um, I would say that um, I do not, I want us to avoid the rosy idea of hope and optimism. But I also want us to not give in completely to the dark abyss of, of, of complete despair. Somewhere is determination and commitment and, and, and a continuing love for one's people and, what, and love for one's world that can animate a continuing desire to see a more free and a more just world. So um, I would say we should do more reading and more thinking and more struggling uh, to find those opportunities for freedom, also for joy, for struggle, also for love, um, so that um, we can preserve some semblance of a world for future generations. I think that's our that's our biggest task. There are others, of course, but this is central. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> it was really interesting. Um, I hope to have you sometime again on this podcast in the future, but not too soon, because now I'm going to wonder if you're the only one at the faculty. Thank you. Thank you exactly. So Thank you very much. Yeah. For, sorry, it was a pleasure. Yeah, Thank you so much. All right. You just listened to Africa Rights Talk Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. 